0: J Crew, it's Leo. Let me set the scene for you. It's 9 p.m. on Monday, and producer Josh Cross and I are sitting in our apartment on Gordon Street in Tel Aviv. That sound you're hearing in the background—that's the bus stop right outside our window. Josh is drinking an ice cold martini I just made for him, and I am drinking some excellent wine from the Judean Hills. There's more hummus and pita on the table than you would actually believe. And we could see the Mediterranean from our balcony. We're here with Tanya Singer and Ellie Blyer to, well, to bear witness to what life is like here, right now, in the aftermath of tragedy and in the middle of a war. Now listen, these are extraordinary times. And so we feel we need to step out of the ordinary ourselves. So here's what we're going to do. Starting this coming Monday, we are going to share with you one new Episode of Unorthodox every day of the week. They won't be the usual fare with the three of us telling stories about our lives and telling jokes about Belgium and bagels and welcoming a Jew and a Gentile. Instead, these daily installments will be long form dispatches from Israel. These past few days, we have seen and we have heard some truly incredible things here. Some heartbreaking, some inspiring some frankly both and we want to take you with us so tune in Monday and join us for the very first installment of our special week-long series of reports from Israel as we begin with an intimate and harrowing tour of Kfar Azza one of the kibbutzim that was worst hit on October 7 but before we even go there we have Hanukkah to celebrate because the business of spreading light and love cannot wait so today We have something very special in store for you. In fact, we have nine stories of people who stepped up and shone brightly and warded off the darkness. Some of them are mavericks. Some are tragic heroes. Some made really small but significant contributions, and others sacrificed everything. But all are reminders of the true meaning of this wonderful holiday, Hanukkah, A holiday that reminds us that real-life miracles happen every single day. So happy Hanukkah, friends. And let us begin to celebrate.
1: Hey everyone, it's producer Josh Cross, and as Liel just told you, we're recording this from Israel. I even surreptitiously recorded those prayers you heard at the beginning of the episode. At the shul, Liel's great-grandfather started. Shh, don't tell, please. But as I watched them light the candles, I realized you can't spark the eight lights of Hanukkah without a shamash. So first up, as a helper, Liel gives us a reminder about the real meaning of Hanukkah.
0: It's a modern day Hanukkah miracle. This year, millions of American Jews will be celebrating the Festival of Lights for the very first time. I don't mean it literally, of course. Hanukkah is everyone's favorite Jewish holiday, dovetailing neatly with Christmas and involving such pleasant duties as gobbling latkes or lighting pretty candles and exchanging gifts. But save for the Orthodox and the exceptionally Jewishly educated among us, few American Jews know or even care that much about the real meaning of Hanukkah. A story much darker than our cheerful modern traditions led on. Until now. America in the aftermath of Hamas's October 7 attacks is a very different country for secular Jews. And this year, many of us will have an opportunity to rethink a holiday we thought we knew well. What then is Hanukkah really about? And why is it suddenly so relevant? Here's the short, short version. One sunny morning in 167 BC, the Jews of Mudi'in, a suburb of Jerusalem, were summoned to the town square. Their imperial overlords, the Seleucids, had taken over the empire built by Alexander the Great and their first order of business was the swift and total Hellenization of everyone and everything. Just make a quick sacrifice to Zeus, the victorious Greeks told the Jews, and we can all go about our day. Come on now. Then, as now, there were plenty of Jews in attendance who thought it was a pretty great idea, who found this proposition acceptable, if not downright charming. Greek culture, with its handsome statues and its chic fashion and its manly sports, was attractive. And it was nice for the Jewish minority tucked away in a dusty corner of the Middle East to feel, well, normal, part of the big wide world out there. One Jew, however, was not inclined to comply. He was Matityao the priest. Not much into idolatry, this bearded zealot drew his sword and killed not only the fellow Jew about to honor the Greek gods, but also the Seleucid governor overseeing the ceremony, launching a war that ended with a stunning victory for the fanatics and that now famous magical menorah burning bright for eight nights. But Matitiao's war wasn't just a rebellion against the empire. It was also a reminder to his generation of sophisticated Jews eager to fit in, that assimilation wasn't really an option. Because the Greeks weren't interested in the gorgeous mosaic of diverse peoples and cultures, they demanded submission, and anyone who insisted on the dignity of difference was erased. Most Jews were too wowed by the empire's razzle-dazzle to realize the simple truth. It took a shocking war to remind them that they were Jews, forever standing athwart history, resented for refusing to replace their ancient ways with something more modern, slick, and ephemeral. And now, millennia later, American Jews are finally learning the same lesson. Before October 7, many of us lived lives of quiet and content assimilation. Sure, we told ourselves, a bunch of Loopy kids on campus may be shouting some offensive slogans and the media may be just a tad bit biased, but if you said and did all the right things, you could still be part of America's gilded elites. And then came the attack and suddenly the gilded elites proved to be much more like the Seleucids than anyone might have imagined with Jewish students assaulted in colleges across the country, with Hamas propaganda passing for news, and with thousands of our neighbors marching around waving terrorist flags and cheering on the destruction of the world's sole Jewish state, American Jews these days are having their Matityahu moment. You could see them, us, filing into synagogues we'd never visited before, or buying Star of David necklaces to make sure that we're easily identified as Jews even though or precisely because we may pay for it with a nasty look or some unkind word or even a slap to the head. You can hear them, us, in dinner parties and on social media, helping each other recover from the betrayal of so many people we thought were our friends. And last month, 300,000 of us, the largest gathering of Jews in American history, marched on the mall in Washington, DC to make sure we were counted as Jews, the men and women who followed the ancient priest to victory that first Hanukkah so long ago never looked back. The dynasty Matityahu founded, the Chashmonaim, governed over a proud and independent Jewish community for more than a century. Future scholars of American Jewish history may very well look back on this Hanukkah, 2023, and determine that it was here and now that a new century of religious and cultural awakening began.
2: It's Stephanie. This year, we felt like we needed something a little different for Hanukkah, and so, Tablet did something we've never done before. We rented out a big, beautiful event space in Manhattan. We gathered 40 of our favorite vendors who make things like jewelry, Judaica, horseradish, and we brought together more than 1,500 people for our first ever Hanukkah bazaar. It was so good, especially during this war and this dark time, to see so many people focused on joy and happiness. So we pulled out our audio equipment and we started to ask people what Hanukkah means to them.
3: I think this Hanukkah is kind of a hearken back to the original Hanukkah story. We're kind of at the new Maccabees in our own way and facing the same kind of hatred and pressure to conform that our ancestors did. So I think this Hanukkah is even more relevant to us now than it has been for many years. Well,
4: Hanukkah is a Zionist holiday, so it's more important now than ever to celebrate the story of protecting what it means to have a place of your own.
3: This is the first Hanukkah where, for me, I wake up and feel Jewish from the minute I wake up until the minute I go to sleep. Other years you can kind of forget about Judaism throughout the day if you're not super religious, but this year is is really At least for me, the first year where every waking moment is uh, you're reminded of your Judaism.
4: You know, we see the story of the Maccabees. They're like the original Jewish activists who stood up to an army many times their size. And when they did, a miracle happened. So it's a good remembrance for us of a story of resistance and resilience that is unfortunately ever present and important.
5: This Hanukkah, I think it's uh, pride in the face of fear. And this is where I get a little bit corny, but there's a quote, I forget who said it. Courage is not the absence of fear, it is courage in the face of fear. And I think that's what Hanukkah looks like this year. It's people choosing to put the menorah in their window, even though, uh, you might have to think twice, unfortunately. And so I, I'm really excited to see that from everybody in the
6: room and a lot of others. too.
5: Hey, it's producer Ellie Blyer. As we all know, Jews in Israel and around the world are doing everything they can at this moment to give of themselves in some way or another. Our next piece is about just that. I spent time on a makeshift army base far in the field near the Gaza border, where Israeli civilians traveled from around the country to donate their time and energy so that they could make IDF soldiers fancy coffee. <laughs> Okay, so let me set the scene for you. We're on a base, probably a kilometer away from the Gaza border. And there are four small, very high-end espresso machines set up on a table underneath a tarp to protect us from the blazing hot sun. And there are like a hundred soldiers, a lot of them 18 years old, pimply-faced, no more than a few months in the army and they are about to go into war. There are baristas that have traveled here from around the country, from all ages, working at some of the most high-end cafes or some of the best home brewers. And they came here today just to make coffee for these soldiers. The person who you're hearing now, that's Eyal Shani. No, not the famous chef. It's the Eyal Shani who has been preparing these coffee events since the start of the war. Eyal's a huge coffee connoisseur and this day in particular was special. Al's dad passed away a year ago, and his dad served in this very unit. And soldiers who served with his dad in the 1973 Yom Kippur War came to this base next to Gaza today to support Al and tell him stories about his dad in the war. <laughs> Yeah,
7: I don't, I don't know. I want to wait to everyone,
5: like do a time or something. No, I. Mmm,
0: it's good. It's good. It's very good.
5: Better than what you usually have on base.
0: Yeah. It's better than the base in 100 times, I can tell you. I love that people help us and give us good food and donate us. It's really hard. warm my heart, warm my heart. You are doing a uh, mitzvah, we call it. I only finished my uh, tironut. Now what? What is basic it? Basic training. Yeah, basic training three weeks ago.
5: And now you're in the middle of a war. Yeah. Are you scared? Are you excited? Are you? No,
0: i I not scared.
3: My name is Liran, and I just love making coffee. I don't do this professionally, but the second I saw this, I said to myself, I got to be at one at least. And here
5: I am today. And this is why I love coffee. It actually makes you happy. And your boss gave you the day off. I'm the boss. And you're the boss.
3: Boss.
5: <laughs> Okay, so here's the thing you need to know about the army. Coffee there, it's not just a pastime. It's not like this cute hobby. It is a religion. It is what gets soldiers through the day, literally. We spent a lot of time on that base talking about all the different ways that soldiers make coffee and consume coffee and what they put in their coffee. And a lot of people, even though they had really fancy espresso sitting right in front of them, kept coming back to one kind of coffee. This coffee goes by a few different names in the army. Some call it black coffee, others Turkish. Some call it nahle, which is actually a brand of black coffee. And here's the thing you need to know about black coffee. It's the furthest thing away from espresso that you can imagine. You literally dump this fine kind of smelly powder into water on a camping stove, turn the fire up all the way, and wait until it boils right to the top of the Finjan. Then it goes down, then it goes up again. How many times do you let it go up and down? No one knows. Some say seven, some say three. Some say put the sugar in first. Some say don't put sugar in at all. There's a huge debate about black coffee in the army. And so I asked the soldiers, well, what do you think about it?
3: Well, after drinking burnt coffee for well over a month, it's good coffee, yeah, very nice coffee. There's some
5: guys over there that were very, very defensive about their ability to make black coffee very well.
3: Oh, 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 this is an age-old debate on how to brew coffee. Yeah, whatever. We can make
5: you some uh, coffee sade.
3: Sade coffee. (laughs) Sade (laughs) coffee.
5: Listen, I mean, if I put you in a room with those other guys, I think there would be a fight.
3: No, no, there will be no fight because I'm accepting of everyone's opinion, even though they are shit. Last war, no, no, the one before that, we were actually issued. No, it's 31. 39. 39. 39 yeah you, so you so you sign uh, for being here right no I'm not volunteering not yet not yet not so yet one year in one year yeah I'll be yeah. a von- volunteer you will no I won't <laughs> can, can we say that that I will not volunteer for another war <laughs>
5: <laughs> So this is not your first rodeo
3: not at all not even my second not even my third. God damn it.
5: So you said this is your last rodeo. For some reason, I don't believe that because I see a lot of people here volunteering and they're way over 40. Do you really think you're done after this one?
3: I think it's a personal choice. Uh, am I done? Will I be d- I don't know. Uh, you're asking me in the midst of a intense emotional storm. Uh, I was in Germany when I got the call and packed up everything and came here. Everyone here has a story. And I mean, we don't know what's gonna happen in an hour let alone what am i going to do in a year i can say right now that yeah i'm done i've seen too much now there's the next and the next next generation already here just going to pass things on and hope that they'll hang on for as long as i did <laughs>
2: We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest.
0: When our next guest, Hadar Kes was 14, she lost her father in a tragic car accident. And as she grew up, she learned just how difficult life could be for orphans. So she started an organization called Chamaniot, or Sunflowers, to help Israeli children who lost their parents help each other cope with this devastating loss. Sadly, after October 7, her work and her group became much more crucial than ever. Here's Hadar.
8: I lost my father when I was 14 in a sudden uh, car accident and I didn't find any support, any place to get support, not the welfare, not, I don't know, the teacher in school, anything. And I found myself in a risky situation, unfortunately. Afterwards, I established chamaniot, chamanioti sunflowers in Hebrew, because I understood there is no any place to help orphans from civil circumstances. And when I started it, I need to first start doing research. So we've done the first research in the entire world who actually connects between orphanhood and being children at risk or youth at risk. And we found out orphans are four times more likely to get arrested, certain times more likely to fall out from school. So we built a very special model that helps the orphan and the entire family. It's the combination between support group to youth program, and we're working in helping 750 families all over Israel every week. We're in the tragic and the scariest event we could ever thought going to happen to us as a nation. And, 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 and it's a hard event for all of us. When I'm talking about Chamaniot, about sunflowers, we understood we have to build like a national program That helps, of course, the new orphans in direct ways, but not only. So we're right now opening five new branches in the south of Israel. And we're also opening new communities for teachers and for uh, guardians in order to bring them to help those children. And we're also helping the education ministry to build programs for the teacher to help the orphans. So we are working from the macro to the micro. We're having a lot of difficult stories right now, but although everything is so sad right now in Israel and very complicated, I assume we're going to have a stronger country, and it's very exciting for us as a nation to see all of the help from from US and from everyone all over the world. Right now, the situation in Israel, I, I, I assume everything eventually will be better.
5: It's producer Ellie again. For this next segment, we wanted to bring you a slice of life from our Testimonies project, which you can listen to in full by visiting testimoniesarchive.com. Just after October 7th, I interviewed the mother of Nova music festival victim, Oriah Ricardo. Oriah was just 26 years old when she was murdered. She had a beautiful smile and was full of life. She was a sister, a girlfriend, and a loving daughter. And as Oriah Shloshim approached, which is the end of the 30-day mourning period? I was invited to rejoin the family as they marked this date. It was important for the family to mark the shloshim religiously, while also bringing Oria's memory and life to the forefront. We began at her gravesite in the Kesaria Cemetery, where intimately everyone joined in prayer and song, led by Oria's mother, Khani, a music teacher herself. After, the people closest to Oria gathered in a private space nearby to share memories of her. And they also shared in a private concert by Oria's favorite musician, the Israeli rapper, Tuna. Now, Tuna is a big deal in Israel, a legit superstar. And without knowing the Ricardo family or his biggest fan, Oria, he agreed to take part in this meaningful moment. Have a listen, first to Oria's mom, Khani, and then to Oria's favorite artist, Tuna.
4: You know my name. You know
5: my name. Tell me. As written in the damage of the Torah of my name, you notice that I a وبالذات عشان انا بقى
6: بعمل داخل روح زمان سلام
4: يا روح
3: الله يا اسرائيل to
4: Ya halomakh yaldane Halos be magiha Numi alda shlima
3: Numi yantata tana
5: I asked Tuna's manager, why did they come here? What brought them across Israel to perform at the Shloshim of Oriya, who is someone they had never met? Because she asked. That's it. Just because she asked. Yeah.
7: I took
5: the shatter in Bala, <foreign language> <speaking in foreign language>
0: days, we throw around the word hero a lot, sometimes without any real good reason or justification. But our next story is a story of a real Israeli hero and a truly amazing human being, Awad Darausha, a young Muslim man from a village up north who always wanted to save lives. Here's his uncle, Muhammad Darausha, telling us the story of Awad and what he did on October 7th.
7: Howard was uh, just a handsome 23-year-old boy. All what he wanted to do in life is to save lives. And uh, that's why he started to study, to be a paramedic at age 16. Then he went to study medicine in Georgia. Corona hit. Bad luck. He came back and didn't want to waste time. So he went to his passion. And he also became an ambulance driver. And did what he wanted to do. He ran from one incident to another, saving lives. Actually, the last thing he started, he started doing an undergraduate degree in business administration because he wanted to have his own ambulance company. That was his dream. He just wanted to be in this and wanted to do it bigger and wanted to do it more. You know, he's the type of person that always looked at Whatever other people needed, and he was there. So every time in the family we needed someone to volunteer to some activity, he knew which kid to turn to. It was him. He did that when he was 12, when he was 16, and also now when he was 23. He was always there to organize a group of people to go and clean up the graveyard in the village, to go up and visit elderly people on holidays to check on them if they need blankets or they needed food. He simply was. 100% 100% human being. and His humanity was bigger than his profession, I think. I think he wanted to be, in, to be paramedic because, as I said, he wanted to be there to help people in need at real time. That's him. That's the boy. And on October 7th, he was stationed, already from the two nights before, at the Supernova place where the party took place in the south, just by the borders of Gaza that was attacked by Hamas. His company sent him there together uh, with uh, three other ambulances, a team of six people, six paramedics and ambulance drivers. And uh, they were handling you know, people that scratched their leg or someone that drank too much and got disease, had to evacuate one person that overdosed to a hospital. And uh, enjoying the music while giving care with a lot of smiles and fun in, in that kind of a situation but you know him and his team were the only six people in the party that were supposed to stay awake and without alcohol away from alcohol and sleep well and be in full attention to the medical needs of the party goers the night before he, he spoke to his mother and he said tomorrow at noon my shift ends So prepare lunch, and uh, he said to her, I'm going to give you the hug I have been giving you in two days. His mind was, in a few hours he will be home, and uh, his uh, his mother remembers him as the the hugging boy, and that was the last thing he talked to her about. And on October 7th, when uh, hell broke loose, there were two waves of attack on the party. The first was with uh, some rockets, and the people started coming to the medical station that his team put in the, on the party site. They started you know, running from uh, also to the people that couldn't come physically to the site. And when his team started realizing that the incident is bigger than handling, the, the station commander, the medical station commander, asked everyone to evacuate the scene, realizing that it's too dangerous for them because they started seeing people falling from bullets that were flying up. Lots of bullets flying around them, and uh, they begged him to leave. They came to us and they talked to us about how they came back to him and asked him to leave and tried to pull him with his uh, clothes uh, to leave, and he refused to leave. Uh, he said that, that too many injured people and the uh, medical staff needs to stay there. He said to them because he speaks Arabic, he thinks he's going to manage. And he refused to evacuate, actually pushed his team to leave because he realized the danger for them as uh, being Jewish uh, staff members and he understood exactly what was happening. And he said, You go, I'll stay, I speak Arabic, I think I'll manage. And uh, when they started running away, looked back at him, he was running from one person to another with bandages in his hands, until they saw him uh, getting shot and falling down and uh, they didn't know what happened to him. Uh, and it took us six days to understand that actually he died because we didn't know if his body was kidnapped, if uh, he was injured, if he was alive or if he was dead. It took six days until we uh, received the body and because there was a concern that some of the bodies were booby-trapped, uh, and uh, that's why they couldn't evacuate all the uh, bodies from the scene. And he had two bullets, and his, uh, one of them was in his heart, and the other one is in his stomach. He came back as with, with, this, uh, with this legacy of fighting uh, for the lives of others until he paid his own life. He didn't lose his humanity for a second. He knew he was treating Jewish kids. He cared less about their ethnic, religious, cultural identity. He wanted to do what his medical duty and medical oath told him to do. You fight for people's lives no matter what. And his no matter what was until you die. And he died doing that.
2: J. Crew, it's Tanya here. You know those nights when you're too wiped out to cook and end up getting pizza for dinner? Can you imagine how moms in Israel feel? Our next guest created a way to get pizza from Israeli pizzerias to families who needed a little help with dinner. Deanna Abrams lives in America and was so upset after October 7th, she just wanted to do something to help. So she created Pizza for Moms. I'll
4: let her tell you all about it. So we actually woke up at this morning to a WhatsApp message from our close friend in Israel saying it is worse than the Yom Kippur War. We are very scared, we don't know what's happening. And immediately we reached out, we called, we are hooked to the news. And just wanted to do something to help her. But when you're across an ocean, there's really, you feel helpless. So I thought, if she lived next door, what would I do? I would send her a meal. And so I reached out and I said, hey, I'm sending you dinner. She called with a message of this was one small thing that made my challenging day so much better. And after talking to her, I said, that's something easy I can do. I will send you dinner every Monday night from now until however long I need to. And she said, actually, there's 21 other families in my key butts that are in the same position as me. Can you send dinner to them and so with that how it took off um, I said of course I can get 21 friends to send dinner to your friends posted um, a message on my Facebook wall and said hey I'm looking to send 21 dinners to my friend and her um, friends in her kibbutz who wants to help me and send a personal message to them that's kind of what made it unique was send them a note of support with the pizza and within I would say an hour I had way more than 21 friends saying who should I send the money to where can I my note. And we hadn't even set up anything. We weren't expecting it to take off that quickly. But within 24 hours, we had Google Forms in place. We had payment methods ready to go in less than, I'd say, 48 hours, we had the notes written and pizzas were being delivered to my friend's kibbutz and then it spread to her sister and her sister's friend's kibbutz. And then it spread to another friend who has students and families throughout the north of Israel and all of their friends. And so within a week, we were delivering to over 150 families just the first week. Pizza owners, um, one of them contacted us and said, who are you? This is a gift from God because all of our catering has just stopped and you were able to provide us with a few weeks worth of funds that we weren't gonna have. So this week um, we're actually delivering hopefully delivering to a Druze village as well as an Israeli village and we should have about hopefully 150 families this week it it ranges on the size of communities we have communities that are requesting our help that one of them said they have 450 families so that's not happening this week because we need more funds but usually any community ranges between 60 to 175 families. I think we're at almost 3,000 but that doesn't include um, we also deliver Shabbat dinners to soldiers on both fronts so so, if you include that, those are not pizzas. We take a break for Shabbat. We've delivered close to 5,000 meals. You go to pizzaformoms.com and you will find all the information there to donate, to write a note, to send Shabbat dinner. All the information is there.
2: again. Danielle Butin is the founder and CEO of the Afia Foundation, an organization that donates surplus medical supplies from the U.S. to communities in need all over the world. They've done work in places like Ghana, Haiti, and Ukraine, and Danielle tells us about the work that Afia is now doing to help Israel.
6: My name is Danielle Butin, and I am the founder and the CEO of the Afia Foundation the biggest hospitals and health centers of new york donate their surplus rescued supplies to Athea. so we're talking about millions of pounds of medical supplies we are the only nation in the world that throws away perfect sterile medical supplies well with an expiration date if they have been in the room with a patient so the opportunity is billions of dollars worth of supplies that could be rescued and redirected and then We send our supplies to sites in need worldwide. Importantly, we do two things. We support existing healthcare systems that face the crisis every single day of not having enough supplies. And we also show up for disasters, man-made or natural. So October 7th um, hits the horrors and the crisis of that day. And we knew we could respond. The JDC started to work with the Ministry of Health in Israel And what's so different about this moment in time is so often during war, we saw this in Ukraine or in other disasters, there's no integrated list of what is needed nationwide. And what's extraordinary and not surprising at all about Israel is the Ministry of Health instantly began collecting needs from hospitals and health centers countrywide, and the JDC is helping with the integration of that list and sharing it with organizations they trust and they know can help them fulfill. And so we have this incredibly well-vetted list. Simultaneous to this, there were so many people activated and sending in supplies and finding cargo planes and filling stuff up. And to be totally frank, I have no idea where this stuff ended up because getting custom cleared in Israel is a sophisticated, complicated, rightful process. They don't need a bunch of stuff that is being hauled to Israel with really good intention behind it, but it has to match needs that they are very precise about and should be. And so we began the process of looking at this list and realized that not only were we going to be able to use supplies that Afia has in-house but we also realized we need to start purchasing some biomedical equipment. And so we were able to raise $2 million, we're trying to raise five, to be able to purchase inventory that matches some of the needs. We don't usually buy supplies. We have all of them donated to us, but this is such an unusual circumstance that we're using every connection we have to be able to support them by sending in supplies that are not requested. It is going to bottleneck custom clearance. And it is not as helpful as strategies. And I think the best way to get involved is to donate funding to those who are involved and in doing this work because we are getting the supplies in and we are procuring and shipping. I think also to volunteer in sites where all hands are on deck. We need volunteers to help us sort through medical supplies. This is incredibly helpful. I believe firmly that action is the antidote to trauma. So we are all watching this story of terror and fear and horrors unfold. And if you can find your own way to activate, it helps. It helps. And I can't say that enough. It can be anything but activate.
1: Hey, the best thing about Chanukah, it's sufganiyot, the delicious fried donuts that we eat because, well, you know, oil. Once upon a time, not so long ago, they used to be simple things, just a good injection of jam and a bit of powdered sugar. But over the last decade or so, Israelis have turned sufganiyot into an arms race of sorts, trying to see who can make the most elaborate, most amazing, most over the top, most I can't believe I'm eating that donut. And so we sent our senior fried food correspondent, the og josh of this podcast josh cross accompanied by native israeli liel to the streets of tel aviv to investigate the latest in the quest to make the perfect sufganiyah josh cross where are we right now as i've said many other times but never meant it for real i'm at your mom's in a nice apartment overlooking hayarkon over the beach And I'm seeing some dude paddleboarding out there and maybe uh, a jetty and stuff. And nobody's in the Sheridan pool, but I would know if they were. Well, (laughs)
8: and
1: and hello also to my mother.
8: Yeah. Hello. I'm so honored that I have such a guest, my son, Liel, and Josh.
0: All right, listen, we're not here to have a good time. We are here to work, and we have a very specific challenge ahead of us because it is the second night of Hanukkah. Right Right here in Tel Aviv. And I've told Josh Cross the story of a certain trend in Israel in recent years uh, to make sufganiyot, or jelly donuts, which used to be plain, beautiful, deep-fried, doughy things injected with a a healthy dose of strawberry jam and coated in powdered sugar. This was it in my simple youth. But in recent years, we have experienced an arms race of sorts. We have experienced a race to see who could make the most ridiculous sufganiyah. And so my mother went out and bought four sufganiyah. And producer Josh Cross, reluctantly- Reluctantly. Will now sacrifice for our people. And he will begin this taste test, just like Hanukkah. We will start here and end there. Josh Cross, kindly eat the first sufganiyah.
1: So this one seems to be a traditional jelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the consistency is far better than like this is no Duncan stuff. Sorry, producer Robert. Now here's the question: In this context, is this like fine sushi where you definitely can't take a bite? You have to eat the whole thing you at have once. You eat the whole thing at once. Okay, yes. that's so. Here's what it sounds like. Can I it in front of your mom? Yes, you may. Fuck that food. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> so so now we have we've established a baseline. Mm-hmm. It is delicious. What would you say about the dough? It is
1: spongy it is this is coco the dog also wanting a bite but will not receive one a donut is supposed to be not quite rubbery but close to that in Mm -hmm. those the sponginess it's not airy, and i would say that is exactly what it was supposed to be
0: ratio uh the the filling to dough ratio
1: if i were eight years old i would be disappointed (laughs) at an an adult age it's also it's it's exactly correct it's what it should be
0: I think we've established a good baseline. It is time now to take a
1: bite of the second mystery, Sifkania. Uh Describe it, first of all. It looks like it has some kind of tan cream. I'm good. If it, if we were in America, I would think it was coffee of some sort, but uh, do we know what it is? We do not. Okay, well, I'm gonna try it and we'll find out. Oh, well, that's halva. Um, that's halva halva. Yeah. Yep, yep. That, 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 <laughs> that is also good. Halva. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Okay. So now, now we've, we're progressing here.
1: Mm-hmm. We've, we've done the thing. Mm-hmm. The chava is also very delicious. Mm-hmm. Does it work well? I have no notes. Oof. Well, then I think the only you thing to do was so
0: good.
1: Yes. is to jump right in to number three. Describe what you're looking at here. I would have to guess it was caramel or something, but it could be something else. I'm going to say, again, either hazelnut cream or dulce de leche, just judging by... My- uh, dulce de leche, like, it's got that color, so right. it's one of those. And, again, the dough on each of these is the same, with just a different topping, so we'll see. <laughs> I think that's dulce de leche. <laughs> it's delicious. Halva um, still beats it, I think, in the, of the three that we've had so far. Halva is still the runner-up, mm. but uh, we can't be certain, because... There's something here that I'm looking
0: at that is tantalizing for it is topped and stuffed with green cream, like moss green
1: cream. I mean, that's got to be pistachio. Right? I think
0: so, too. Either that or like some kind of weirdly colored lemon, although I don't think that is.
1: I, I got to throw points at your mom because the, the, the secret that you learn married to a French woman, but also who is Moroccan and having been in Israel before or whatever is pistachio is. Actually, when used correctly, the single greatest topping for anything ever okay, so when used correctly.
0: We have a hope
1: here. This, this oh, I have. This may take yeah, the cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. take From the donut. Last
0: year, pistachio became a great hit in lollipops, in cakes, in biscuits, in everything. They just stuff even within
2: children's cheese, um, you know, just a snack. It's cheese with pistachio. Cream. So. I believe this is
0: pistachio. All right, then I then we need a winner here. We need this to be the single greatest sufganiyah
1: you've ever had. Josh Cross, do the honors. Holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I'm going to say is yes. It is. It is pistachio. It is the best. I think. I think it's a miracle. Uh, we came
0: here to have one sufganiyah and it lasted eight Sivkaniotes somehow. <laughs>
6: like
5: Hanukkah. Yeah. Yes.
0: This is this is very, very good. Producer Josh Cross, thank you for sacrificing for our people. Hanukkah Sumea. Hanukkah Sameah. Happy Hanukkah J. Crew. Now listen, I know the holiday is over. And I hope you all got exactly the gifts you wanted. And none of that, oh, some air, here's some socks business. But I would like to go ahead and suggest that there is one more gift you absolutely need to buy for yourself and honestly, for everyone you love. It's Tablet Magazine's Guide to Zionism. It's a really special book. And I'm not just saying that because I edited it. First of all, we kick things off with a small but essential collection of Zionism's seminal texts. You'll read Herzl and Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin in their own words, a crash course in the history of this potent idea that still excites and moves us a century later. Then we collected for you the few dozen essays you need to make sense of, honestly, everything that's going on in the world today when it has to do with Israel. Why do so many media outlets, for example, have such a hard time reporting fairly and accurately about Israel? Maddie Friedman, a longtime AP insider, delivers a scathing and eye-opening answer. Is Zionism racism? And if not, why do so many otherwise smart and lovely people seem to think that it's okay to say so? Novelist Anne Royfi responds. And what did Shimon Peres Israel's legendary former prime minister and president. Think about the peace process, startup nation, and the future of Israel. You could read his very last interview, an interview he gave just a very short while before he passed away. You'll also find essays by such luminaries as George Steiner, Michael Walzer, and Yair Lapid, and by not-so-luminaries like, yeah, okay, me. From the Iran deal to Hamas, from social media to right-wing agitator, Itamar Ben-Gvir, this book covers everything and anything you could think about. So really, what are you waiting for? Go to tabletmagstore.com and order your copy. It's a gorgeous book. It will make for a belated Hanukkah gift or an early Christmas gift. And it's the perfect volume to have on your lap as you curl on the couch with a blanket and some hot cocoa or a stiffer drink finding some comfort in the eternal story of our eternal people. Buy it now. Read it soonest. Chag Sameach, my friends. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, with Stephanie Butnick and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Deron Ruskay with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosberg. Our theme music is by Golem, and our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you, so email us at unorthodox, at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line 914-570-4869 Until next week Shalom friends and a happy Hanukkah Chag Sameach
2: Okay, love you guys. Bye bye.